This is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by Marshall University, committed to teaching, research, and professional training with degree programs in multiple locations and online. More about the Marshall family at marshall.edu. Embassy Suites by Hilton Charleston, an all-suite hotel and conference center minutes from Yeager Airport and Capital Market. Reservations and brasserie dining information available at hilton.com. Segra, providing fiber-based communication solutions. Segra, freedom to grow. More information at segra.com. Welcome back to the legislature today. I'm Bob Brunner. Thanks for joining us for tonight's coverage of the 2023 legislative session. Discussions of tax cuts have dominated the news lately because of flat budgets and greater than projected revenues. The states had large budget surpluses, but the Senate and the governor disagree with the proper approach to returning some of that money to the citizens. Senate Republicans gathered in front of the Senate chamber this morning to present their wide-ranging tax reduction plan for West Virginia. Chris Schulz was there. Senate Majority Leader Tom Takubo, a Republican from Kanawha County, led the presentation of the Senate's tax plan Wednesday morning. And what we believe we've, we've put together is a, a very comprehensive, safe tax reduction plan that is uh, as wide as we could possibly make it to capture and help the vast majority of West Virginians across the state of West Virginia. And what we want to do now is try to be able to give some tax relief back to the West Virginians across the state. Um, but we want to do so in a way that we don't overspend, that we don't uh, overstep and kind of get out in front of our skis and then get in a situation where we hurt anybody. First, the plan would reduce personal income tax by 15% across the board next year. Senate Finance Chair Eric Tarr, a Republican from Putnam County, said the plan would continue reducing personal income tax in the years to come. There's triggers in this, a trigger, that goes as our economy grows here in West Virginia, that it further brings down the income tax all the way to zero. The plan is a departure from Governor Jim Justice's plan to reduce personal income tax by 50% over the next three years, starting with a 30% cut. The House of Delegates approved the governor's plan weeks ago, but Senate leaders called it dead on arrival before it ever reached their chamber. Tar clarified that the personal income tax would continue to decrease as the economy grew. When our sales tax collections, without ever raising a sales tax, increase 105% over the previous year, it triggers a dollar-for-dollar dollar reduction of that amount of increase. If it's 107%, then it's going to be the 7% that triggers it down. If it's less than 105, there's no trigger, and it creates a smoothing mechanism to safely bring down our income tax to zero. The Senate's tax reduction plan also includes a rebate for the payment of taxes on vehicles, reminiscent of the proposal in Amendment 2 that was voted down in November 2022. Takubo said the vehicle tax rebate would ensure a benefit for low-income households and those on fixed income. Regardless if you're low-income or regardless if you're fixed income, you usually got to have a vehicle to get around. 
we're going to give that back in a rebate uh, so that, that they also can benefit from this comprehensive tax plan. Similarly, the plan would give a homestead real property tax rebate for some service-disabled military veterans, as well as eliminate the West Virginia tax filing marriage penalty. Many West Virginians don't realize that uh, the tax code in West Virginia actually helps those that are single and not married couples. And that's not what West Virginia values are about. Um, we should be promoting and, and helping those um, financially that uh, want to build a family and have that family unit. So this will eliminate that penalty in our tax code. The plan is not limited to personal income and promises a 50% rebate for the payment of equipment and inventory taxes paid by West Virginia small businesses. Tarr said the legislators had heard criticism of a similar action during their push for Amendment 2, and now limited the rebate to small businesses only. What this bill does, it does not include corporate net. So it's your pass-through entities, it's your sole proprietors, it's the small businesses of West Virginia. So this does not affect the corporate net income tax, which would have included those big boxes. Takubo said Senate leadership has been speaking with justice throughout the session and believes their plan achieves his goal of helping the small folks, the small businesses, those that are less fortunate in the state, but are still waiting for comment on the plan. Senate President Craig Blair, a Republican from Berkeley County, said he has reached out to the House Speaker Roger Hanshaw, a Republican from Clay County, to let him know what's happening. Blair concluded by saying the Senate is ready to move quickly to get the plan into the House of Delegates as soon as possible. One of the goals is, is to be able to finish this legislation and have it move into the House of Delegates before day 30, and today's day 29. So our goal is, is to be able to move this on through and get it done. We've been working for over a month on it. For the legislature today, I'm Chris Schultz. Shortly after the senator's announcements, Governor Jim Justice held his own press conference to give an administrative update. He praised the Senate and Blair for its proposal. A small business rebate, a different version of which Justice focused on in his campaign against Amendment 2, he said the Senate's changes addressed his concerns. Justice says he'll meet with legislative leaders Thursday morning to further discuss the various plans for the state's taxes. The Senate returned to session at 4 p.m. to discuss Senate Bill 424 that includes all those proposed cuts. Rules were suspended to advance the bill to third reading and complete action on the legislation. A number of senators, including all three Democrats, rose to voice their support. The bill passed unanimously. It now goes to the House of Delegates for its consideration. Getting a referral from your doctor to a specialist is common enough, but in many instances, when there's a third party involved in that referral, there are concerns about possible kickbacks and bribes. The passage of Senate Bill 241 today aims to safeguard the tax money. The bill provides enforcement for the already established Patient Brokering Act, fines of up to $50,000 and up to five years in prison can be leveled to those found guilty of paying or receiving any sort of commission to induce the referral of a patient to or from a health care provider or facility. Delegate Mike Pushkin, a Democrat from Kanawha County, notes the House floor for the largely unregulated federal money coming into the state to fight the drug epidemic results in third parties getting cash for making illegal 
behavioral health referrals. The issue is, uh, if you want to uh, clean the industry up, this is the place to look. You always are told to follow the money. Well, this is where the money is. It's in Medicaid billing. Uh, so what's going on, the bad operators that in, the, uh, in the sober living home field are making referrals to behavioral health and getting money in exchange. The bill passed the House and Senate unanimously and now goes to the governor's desk for his signature. In our hills and hollow state, agriculture is often a challenge, especially for the small family farmer. On Ag Day at the legislature, Randy Yowie found a multi-generational farmer honoring the past while focusing on the future. Among all the agriculture booths and displays filling the Capitol Rotunda, we found Alex and Jade Hanna. The Greenbrier County couple operated a diverse family farm that was established by Alex's ancestors in 1787. We've done a wide range of things over those years. Um, uh, in my grandparents' lifetime, they were dairy farmers and um, they transitioned to beef farming. Uh, they've done uh, everything from sheep and poultry, um, but beef is what has really took off for them. Beef and vegetables are current Hanna Farm mainstays. Alex says the challenges these days are rising expenses that don't net a profit when taking their beef and veggies to market, and then the markets themselves are dwindling. He says the West Virginia Grown promotion is a godsend for small family farms. They're good about encouraging uh, programs such as the Farm to School. We've sold a lot of produce through the Farm to School program before, um, so they really bring knowledge to people in our state about the farmers that are here and what they produce. Now the Hannas, like many small farmers around West Virginia, are resorting to agritourism as a way to make a profit. Here's their laundry list. Pumpkin patch, corn, maize, cut flowers, food truck, whatever they can do to survive. We depend heavily on the public, uh, especially with agritourism, we depend on the public to come to us. No farmer ever says the job is easy, but the Hannas say they love what they do and plan to pass it on to the next generation. For the legislature today, I'm Randy Yowie. Discussions about the future of West Virginia's Department of Health and Human Resources have been going on for more than a year. The agency touches the lives of nearly everyone in the state in one way or another. Now, Appalachia Health News reporter Emily Rice sits down with lawmakers directly involved with restructuring the DHHR to discuss that agency's future. Thanks, Bob. Today, I'm welcomed, or joined by Delegate Amy Summers and Senator Mike Maroney both uh, chairs of their respective Senate and House uh, committees on health and human resources. Uh, just the health rock stars I've got with me today to talk about the DHHR. And we have a lot to talk about, so uh, I'll jump right in. The, uh, you uh, separately have bills that, uh, Senate Bill 126 and House Bill 2006, I reviewed them, they seem to be, you're both um, involved in those to a certain extent, and that's reorganizing the DHHR. They seem very similar. Um, is, are there any huge differences that you would argue against? No, we crafted the bills together. I okay. mean, we've had conversation, we created the first bill together, <coughs> and the second bill was just after more discussions, thinking it through, talking to the executive, different, different members. Um, what they think about it, they're, they're pretty similar. 
um, but with one goal in mind to uh, restructure the DHHR into three separate departments. Mm -hmm. Agree. They, they, take, they take into account everybody's input, but you start one in the Senate, you start one in the House, because you never can predict where a bill will get hung up. So you have two vehicles. Mm -hmm. To, you know, to, that's, uh, that's, the, that's the whole point of the two bills. That's what I was thinking after I reviewed them. But um, So obviously the McChrystal report is the basis of a lot of this action or you know, just the history of the past few years. So what actionable items from that report are being considered in this legislation that you all are working on together? Actionable items from the McChrystal report? Yes. Well, one thing they said in the McChrystal report was that communication was a real issue uh, from the people you know, it's very tall, vertical bureaucracy in DHHR. So the way we've structured it, for example, in the um, Department of Health, there will be a secretary and then, and then the departments under that will report to the secretary. There's one level between uh, the people that are running those departments and the secretary and then only one step away from the governor. So there will be better communication, uh, less, less layers to go through. You have three, you have three separate secretaries. You know, maybe the Department of Health, Department of Human Services, Department of Health Facilities. You know, DHHR is a massive, massive part of our budget. If you count federal match, somewhere probably around eight billion dollars. I mean, I don't know exactly, but that's probably close. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of money. And the, and furthermore. So you were actually in the committee meeting where they presented that budget. Yeah. Senate Finance. Uh, yes, and I'm on finance as well. You yes. Were yes. <laughs> My apologies. No, but furthermore, like the, the, the way it was set up now is like with one secretary, mm -hmm. some of the enforcement arms are under housed under the same secretary. Mm -hmm. So you we're asking for a division or a department or a division of the DHHR to enforce something on another division, all housed under the same secretary. That doesn't make sense. Too many cooks in the kitchen? Yes. Yeah. Well, or the foxes in the house. Well, it's, like, yeah. it's hard to punish yourself. Oh, exactly, yeah. Yeah, so that, that was one of our big reasons for separating, <laughs> is that you have um, a section that provides services, and then you have a regulatory body that monitors and inspects and investigates and yeah. makes sure that those services are be, being provided yeah. okay. uh, in a correct manner. So actually on that uh, topic, we we're looking through uh, some of the <clears throat> databases that have been discussed heavily within the committees that may have had legislation that passed that allowed for them, like the all payers claims database. <clears throat> um, uh, where is it? West Virginia path, uh, those kind of systems that haven't been entirely implemented. So you're saying that the things that you all want to accomplish in these bills will help actually see those outcomes rather than those getting kind of stuck in limbo throughout this reorganization process. Well, I think what we saw in the pandemic was that when you have a crisis in your state, the secretary and all of their resources go towards that crisis. So we've had water crisis, we've had floods, um, we've had tornado, I mean, all, all these different things. And when that happens, everything is the focus on that public health emergency. Because of that, then we have health facilities where people are being abused and neglected that gets ignored and, or if not ignored, gets less attention paid to it. And we have a big foster care, care crises. We are still having substance <coughs> use disorder issues and they're just not getting the attention that they deserve. And so with three secretary model, we feel like there will be a better focus 
on those specific uh, issues that we're facing. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And the, uh, I mean, it's hard to focus on everything when you're in the midst of a crisis. And we were, we we're in a pandemic that we've, no one's seen the likes of before. And when you have the, the hierarchy of the DHHR, when you have one secretary and a, and a small component of a leadership team focusing on the pandemic, mm. other sections ha have the potential to be ignored. You mentioned the all-payers claims database. It's unrelated to what we just talked about, but it's, we passed that bill, what, 10 years ago? It's never been instituted. You know, they came out with a 109-page rule that they wanted to pass that got shot down because it was very intrusive to people's per the people of West Virginia's personal information. Mm -hmm. So those are the kind of things that this new model will hopefully help okay. correct. So the all-payers database, <clears throat> all-payer claims database wouldn't be something that would be appropriate in the new restructuring of the DHHR? No, it, it, when we are looking closely at the DHHR, we were trying to find <coughs> things where money is being spent and we're not getting what we plan to get. Well, yes. yeah, and it's moot now because when we passed it, it was important. Federal legislation has since trumped what we did. It doesn't, it's, at this point it's moot. Okay. So that was kind of something that uh, we had spoken about was, you know, the privacy concerns. Um, but just the, no matter what house it is, Senate or House, um, it seemed to be an issue of taking too long to implement. Um, and this kind of thing could also be the case for the restructuring, I think is a lot of people's worry that this could be something that lasts another 10 years. Well, let me correct you on the uh, implementation of the all parish claims database. It didn't take too long to implement. It has yet to be implemented. And it won't be because it's now gonna, about to be gone. Uh, 10 years it has never been implemented. So uh, the restructuring, I don't think it will take as long to implement. I think it'll, they, there's, that will happen because the, the governor will appoint the secretaries, right? So therefore it will happen quickly. It's not, we're not dependent upon one secretary to implement a program. Absolutely. And the bill, if you saw the committee substitute, um, it, this will be in effect January 1, 2024. <coughs> so they have between now and then to get everything organized and set up. So that's a really, that's a big difference from these 10 year contracts with outside companies that are building a database as opposed to something that we're talking about, which is internal, more secretaries to be able to handle more workload. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, in one of our meetings this summer, we asked the past secretary, when was the last time he'd been to Sharp Psychiatric Hospital? And he said 2019. That, that's not okay. Um, we have a lot of issues going on in our psych facilities um, that, that need a closer eye. And so four years was too long for us um, when, we, when we heard that comment. We like, we need, we need a secretary there. And I think, I think the majority of West Virginians would agree, all of you know, the foster kids, 6,000, these numbers, yeah. they're all, you know, it's taking too long. What's the action? So yeah. what do you say to questions like that when you're actively yeah. working? Well, it's, well, it's not only that, but it's, 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 it, that's a very valid point and very accurate. Mm -hmm. But it's the fact that there's $8 billion roughly going through DHHR. Okay, and yeah, the question is, where's the money? Some of it's going, yes, where's some of it's going money? to foster care, some of it's going to our health facilities, mm -hmm. some of it's going to CPS, some of it's going, it's going all over the place. And we, you know, one secretary to oversee all that. That's who can do that? That's hard. It's grown to be so big. Now, Three can just make it more fine tuned, more streamlined. 75% from federal funding. Does that obviously it's still, still money? It's still money, man. No, it's, it's yeah, yeah it's, it's still our money. Absolutely. You know, it doesn't matter where it came from, it's still our money to spend on our people. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And um, 
So for the employees of the DHHR, I think that's some, some folks we're not thinking about, or we are thinking about, because people that work with, during your budget presentation, the DHHR budget presentation, he was saying, uh, saying that the main thing that the DHHR did have was workforce that was invested, and that the main thing was just to fill in the vacancies, and that he was so proud of the people that he worked with. Um, well, we're proud of them. They do excellent work. Absolutely. For sure. um, they are very, very overburdened, um, and we're hoping to get them better communication. Um, I'm excited. We found out, you know, a lot of different offices didn't have internet. Uh, I'm excited. They are investing in internet uh, broadband for their local offices. They are going to get them iPads. Um, just talking about it, we're getting a better focus. Yeah, yeah the amount of vacancies and the DHHR is not uh, specific to DHHR. We have that problem across the state. You know, we're not here to talk about the, the prison guards and everything else, but, but it's a problem. It's a problem every year since I've been here. This is my seventh session. And it's, it's, the bottom line is this. The salaries aren't high enough to be competitive, and therefore, until they are, the vacancies will be there. To be able to work for DHHR in some capacities, if you're a single mother with a couple kids and qualify for SNAP benefits, it's not acceptable. And so to speak to that, um, the pay raises in the Eastern Panhandle specifically have been a huge topic of conversation. What would you all say to people that may feel that would be unfair to pay people more in an Eastern Panhandle as opposed to the rest of West Virginia, whereas we know, you know, that's a very much border area with Maryland and Virginia. We've got so much competition. What would you say to people that might have something against those pay raises specifically for the Panhandle? I, I understand how they're feeling. Mm -hmm. The workers in that area, though, are not staying in West Virginia. They're crossing the border because they make a lot more money in Virginia and Maryland. <coughs> so we have to do what we can to fill to fill the vacancies. Morgan County has none. Yeah. No, they have no workers. I would agree. Uh, and even take it a step further. Uh, it's not about being fair. It's not like, that's not what you do in a free market type of situation, right? You, you, the market d determines the salaries. If the Eastern Panhandle is competing and with the Virginia and Maryland is paying higher salaries, then we have to be competitive to get higher salaries. And if other areas, the salaries are lower, but the competition is lower, then that, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. make, to me, it makes sense. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's governing from a standpoint of reality. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the main questions, obviously, is transparency. Um, and with restructuring this massively funded agency we've already spoken about, um, I've got 7.7 .7 billion, but we could easily round that up. Uh, largest in the state, where's the money going? Do you think with this restructuring and breaking down the, the people of West Virginia will be able to see alongside lawmakers where that money's going? It's, it's worrying that lawmakers don't know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Budget transparency mm -hmm. is one of the biggest reasons we're doing that. We, we don't know where all the money's going. So mm -hmm. you will see develop over the next year or so a different budget uh, presentation. It's now, I think, maybe six pages, and it will probably triple or quadruple where we can break out the line items of expenses that they're doing and evaluate those. Agreed. Agreed and seconded. Uh, yeah. and I, would, I would expect nothing but more efficiencies mm -hmm. in the spending of money with more oversight. And the oversight is more secretaries overseeing a smaller portion of DHHR, divided in a nice 
fashion, in my opinion. So I think, I think his uh, uh, improvements will be coming. Okay. And so with the last uh, minute or so we've got here, I wanted to talk about uh, the foster care ombudsman, ombudsman and um, expanding their authority. If you could just kind of speak to what an ombudsman does for an agency, specifically a foster care ombudsman. Go ahead. Okay, so in uh, the way we're breaking it out, mm -hmm. the Office of the Inspector General is an agency that investigates and, and kind of is the watchdog <coughs> for these other, other things that are going on. The foster care ombudsman is underneath of that office mm -hmm. and deals specifically with foster care children. An ombudsman is watching out for their best interest and making sure that things are being done correctly and kind of their... I can't think what the right word is, but they're their spokesperson, their representative, and their their watchdog. They are they are a, the uh, they are the go-between, right? So they are the voice of the f foster kids, okay? And so the bill that we just passed, so passed a house bill. The house sent us a great bill at Ombudsman, and you know there's there's been issues, right? And there's been lawsuits. And the, the bill, all this bill does that we just passed, it was a house bill that we just passed, it gives the ombudsman, and thank you for struggling with the word because I do every single time I say it, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the, it gives them more authority, more early, earlier intervention. Uh, it does nothing but strengthen the, their position. And if we strengthen their position, then the foster kids have a stronger position, and that's what it's all about. Absolutely. Thank you both so much for your time. You're welcome. I really appreciate it. Uh, talking about the DHHR. Back to you, Bob. Thanks for that, Emily. Tune in to the legislature today, Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. We'll have more news and interviews from the 2023 legislative session. And remember, West Virginia Public Broadcasting is covering the session daily in our radio news program, West Virginia Morning, and on our news site at wvpublic.org. We also broadcast the daily floor sessions of both the House and Senate on the West Virginia channel, and we stream those on YouTube as well. I'm Bob Brunner. Thanks for joining us and have a great evening. Support for the legislature today is provided by Marshall University, committed to teaching, research, and professional training with degree programs in multiple locations and online. More about the Marshall family at marshall.edu. Embassy Suites by Hilton Charleston, an all-suite hotel and conference center minutes from Yeager Airport and Capital Market. Reservations and brasserie dining information available at hilton.com. Segra, providing fiber-based communication solutions. Segra, freedom to grow. More information at segra.com.